Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to gather as your people this morning. We thank you for the chance to read your word. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of our life, in the mess, in the difficulty, in the good times and the bad, that you speak to us. You speak the words that we need to hear. Uh, But Lord, by your spirit, give us the ears and the hearts to receive them this morning. Lord, you have spoken. Lord, help us listen. Help us be comforted. We pray these things in the great and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. As a lot of you know, but some of you won't, uh, almost a year ago, our eldest son Isaac was diagnosed with leukemia. Uh, It was at 10 p.m. in Wellington Hospital. The head paediatrician came in and told Adele and I the terrible news. 10 p.m. 8 a.m. the next morning, we were on a plane uh, with all of our belongings and our three children uh, on a life flight down to Christchurch for treatment. Uh, We were up and away from our home for eight months. Eight whole months. Four months down in Christchurch, four months up in Auckland, uh, and it was with great thanks to God uh, we returned back to Wellington on the 28th of June this year. Uh, I counted it up, 261 days away from home. And on that day, the 28th of June, it was so, so good to be home. Uh, we were fortunate enough to come back with our son on, in, on, in recovery. Uh, it was great to be back amongst our own things, our own bed. Like, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not a double bed kind of guy. I'm more of a queen or king bed kind of guy, as you can probably tell. It was great to be in our own kitchen, our, our own couch, the things that were familiar to us. It was a real blessing to be back amongst our friends, our community, people who know us and care for us and had been praying for us. For us, coming home was such a relief. I, 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 I underestimated how good it would be to be home. Just the weight off the shoulders, the kind of just kind of walking around all the time, just going, just that exhale of breath, the comfort of the familiar, the welcoming, the community, the place where we belonged. And what it meant was coming home was not just coming back to that which was familiar, we were also leaving something behind. We were kind of leaving that whole nightmare behind, that uncertainty. We were leaving behind the cancer and the hospital and the transplant, that heavy load that we had carried around for those eight months. We were leaving that behind and we were coming home. Since we've been back, I think it's almost been every single day, Adele and I have said to each other, gee, it's good to be home. Like we still find ourselves saying it all these months later. But with that picture in your mind, with that feeling in your mind, with that longing in your mind, we need to amplify that as we come to this part of God's Word, to to the end of our journey through the book of Revelation. Revelation chapters 21 and 22, this great climax is actually a great relief, the great hope of finally coming home. And it's a beautiful homecoming. Chapter 21, verse 3, if you have a look there, it's a place where there's no more fears and there's no more tears. Uh, 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. 
No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. How? Well, it's because God himself, in a very real way, will be with his people. God himself will be with us. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but there are people who walk around and they talk at length about their their spiritual experiences and their, their feelings of the presence of God. And no matter how close they might make that picture sound, and so often it leaves you feeling like you're missing out or you've not quite got what they've got. The reality is that in this world, there's always going to be a distance between us and God. There will always be a distance. And whatever we experience, whether it's genuine or manufactured or whatever, the Apostle Paul says it's whatever experience we have of of closeness to God, it's now just but a poor reflection in a mirror. But that's going to change, says John. A time is coming when we shall see face to face. A time is coming when we will dwell with God as his people, where he will live with us and we will be with him and he will be our God. And that's the main point of these last two chapters of Revelation. Our heavenly home is going to be brought into the presence and the comfort and the security of our God. And that hope of being with God, it's supposed to inspire us to continue to faithfully follow Jesus, to follow Jesus to the end without compromise, without... uh, without losing focus, without being led down another path. But given the experience we have now of distance between us and God, uh, that we cannot quite ever get our heads around what these chapters are talking about, John uses two pictures to help us better understand what it'll be like to be in the presence of God. What will we like to be part of that heavenly home? And the first picture we get is a picture of a wedding and the second picture we get is the picture of a city. So picture number one, and John, uh, he's shown us this picture back before in chapter 19. Uh, picture number one is a wedding. It's a, it's a picture of a bride and groom about to tie the knot. And in verse three, John says that, it's, that God is finally going to dwell with his people and Jesus with his church like a bride and a groom. And it's a picture of incredible beauty It's a picture of an elegant strapless dress with a fishtail train and ruched around the waist and elegant crystal beading on the bodice. All the things a woman would notice. And it's white, the thing a man would notice. (laughs) It's a beautiful bride and yes, I I married up, uh, that's for sure. It's a beautiful bride and she's dressed perfectly for the occasion. Not a thing is out of place. And after what seems like an incredibly long wait, the bridal cars arrive and the bridal march is played. And there John describes in verse 2, it's a picture of incredible beauty. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now you'll notice the images start to converge here. He looks at the bride and he sees a city, the new Jerusalem, And what that's meant to show us is that the bride, it's a picture of us, the people of God, God and his people together finally as one. If you can flick over the page to chapter 19 for a second. We've seen this image before of the wedding. Here we've seen how the bride has been made ready in chapter 19. In chapter 19, verse 7, we see the final preparations for the wedding. Verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. 
Verse 8, fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And in the brackets, we get an explanation of this. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. On the wedding day, there we are, the people of God, radiant and dressed as we should be. And we're getting this glimpse of the wedding dress. We've seen it before through the book of Revelation. We've seen that how God has prepared his bride for this moment. Robes that are no longer stained or soiled by sin. The bride is dressed in fine linen, bright and clean. It's given to her in, verse, in chapter 19. Robes that have been, how have they been cleaned? Well, they've been cleaned by being washed, by being washed in the blood of the Lamb. Dressed in righteousness, clothed in holiness, clean from stains and sin and wickedness, washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. Now here on City on a Hill, we, um, I think Adele would like you to take that picture down now. Thanks. Um, I'd love, you can keep it up, I don't care, but uh, I think Adele would like it down. Um, here at City on a Hill, we... <laughs> We often talk about our future plans. Churches love to talk about their future plans. We want to see more people come to know Jesus. We want to see more church planting happening. We want to see more men and women trained up in all sorts of areas of Christian ministry and maturity. We've all got plans. But as good as our plans might be, here is God's final plan for His church. His plan is for us to be beautiful. And for our beauty to be in our righteousness and our love and our patience and our kindness and our goodness and our faithfulness and our integrity and our honesty and our purity. Dressed in white by Jesus, the Lamb whose blood was spilt so that we could be washed clean from our sin and our corruption. Jesus whose sacrificial death is all that we need to be prepared for this wedding day. Where we will finally be united with our God forever. Now, we don't exactly know what this wedding day will be like. It's, a, it's an image to help us capture some, something of the concept of what's going on or, or what the experience will be like. Uh, but we do know how we ought to behave if we're engaged, don't we? Uh, if we're engaged, we prepare for our wedding day by faithfully and patiently waiting. You see, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have your wedding dress, the the robes washed white by the blood of the Lamb, then this engagement period isn't a time to be flirting with someone else. It's not a time to go and sleep with someone else. It's not a time to go and shack up with the old flame because that would be betrayal, wouldn't it? You're engaged. It means you're spoken for. You're betrothed. The wedding is coming. The ring is on the finger. The Holy Spirit, God's guarantee, His gift has been given to you. And so now, as we wait for that wedding day, it's the time to remain faithful to Jesus. To have only eyes for Jesus. To be fully devoted to Jesus. To have allegiance only for Him. To refuse to give your worship or your affection to anyone or anything other than Jesus. Save yourself for this wedding day. It's such a helpful image for us to have in mind that this wedding awaits us, this, our wedding awaits us, where we will be with God, presented perfect by Jesus. And on that day, what will it be like? Well, verse 4, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. 
there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And you see the sickness and the sin and the suffering, the death and the disease and the disaster, the evil and the enemy, they are all gone and they are gone for good. And they are gone because we will truly be with God. He will be our comforter. He will be our hope. He will be our peace. And that day is worth holding out for, isn't it? It's worth remaining faithful for, isn't it? It's worth getting ready for. It's a day that's not to be missed. Uh, now, the, the image of the, the, the picture of the bride, then, um, as you say, it kind of emerges into something else, and we get this second picture. Uh, John, he looks at the bride and he sees it's actually a city, uh, the city where God dwells with his people. Uh, now, if you're reading this, then that's slightly disappointing because the essence of heaven isn't that rugby is played there and. Uh, the essence of heaven isn't, as the Muslim martyrs would like to say, the number of virgins waiting on your arrival. The essence of heaven here is that God is there. God is there firsthand with his people. The city is the new Jerusalem. See, the old Jerusalem, it's over and done with. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And the essence of the city, again, it's verse 3, it's God dwelling with his people. And the reason we get a a kind of a picture of a city here isn't because it's literally going to be a city with skyscrapers in in heaven. It's because a city gives us the the image of the the ideas of closeness and proximity to God. Uh, It gives us the idea of God gathering his people together for blessing. If you look through the Old Testament, God often scatters his people in judgment and he gathers them for blessing. A city gives us the idea that God has gathered his people to be close to him so that he can bless them, so that he can care for them, so that he can be their God and they can be his people. And because God is there firsthand, you'll notice that this city actually doesn't need a few things. Now, if you take a look at the description in verse 11, uh, John kind of takes a closer look at this city in the new heavens and the new earth. And it says this in verse 11, it shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels on the gates and the gates and on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This is the gathered people of God, Old and New Testament, those who are gathered by the blood of the Lamb. And it's massive and it's shimmering and it's transparent and it's gold. But what's not there, verse 22? I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You see, the temple, the focal point of the old Jerusalem, it was the symbol of God's presence with his people, the symbol of relationship between God and his people. But the way that John sees the new Jerusalem, there is no need for a temple. There is no need for symbols anymore. There's no need for symbols because the reality has come. And there's no sun or moon either, verse 23. The city has no need for it. For the glory of God and the light of the Lamb is, the, is, is all that it needs. The radiance of God is all, that it, all the light that it needs. And behind all the imagery here in uh, 21 and 22, behind all these images of God and man together, 
It's actually hinting to us that this is not just the climax of uh, 22 chapters of the book of Revelation. This is not just the climax of, of, of this vision that John has received. This is the climax of a much bigger story. You see, the final chapters of the Bible, they're the, they're the perfect conclusion to the whole of the Bible. You see, everywhere you look through here, you see reminders of the very start of the Bible, back in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And back in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, we, we see how the story begins and how it unfolds and how God's good world was overturned by humanity's desire to run things our own way. The way that Genesis pictures it is that God and man, kind of at the very beginning, they're in the garden together and they're in harmony and there's free access to the tree of life and there's a, a, a lush river running out of the garden. These things are sounding familiar to what we see in Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, God says to, the, to humanity in the garden, grab anything you like except fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Take what you want, but don't eat the fruit from the tree of we'll decide right and wrong for ourselves. If you eat from that tree, if you grab for that autonomy, if you distrust my words and you choose to do things your own way, well, the consequences will be that you will surely die. And you know what happened? That's exactly what we did. We grabbed for that autonomy and we've reaped the terrible consequences since. It says this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, they hid from God among the trees of the garden. They were running from God. They were afraid of Him. Uh, But worse than that, the world was then under a curse, now facing inevitable death. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 17 of Genesis says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. And then worst of all, in verse 19 of chapter 3, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. And so the people are shut out of the garden. The tree of life forever seems out of reach, out of bounds, and life now will only be suffering and death. The world is under a curse, a curse of futility, a world shut off from the tree of life, a people cut off from their God by their own sin and rebellion. That is the where the Bible begins. That is the dilemma. And now as we come to the end of the Bible, you can watch it all kind of come back together again. Did you notice the way in Revelation 22, there's a garden at the heart of this city. And there's water flowing out of this garden, the water of life. And on each side of the river stands the tree of life, a, a tree with new crop 12 times a year, plenty of fruit for the people of God to eat, to continue life. And verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. No longer will there be any curse. Here is Eden done over again. Here is God's creation restored in the way that it's meant to be. Now, Revelation was originally written for first century Christians who were living under intense persecution, who were regularly dragged before the governor and asked to deny Christ and worship the emperor under punishment of death. That was their experience of this curse. And for them, given the black backdrop of their current persecution, 
Can you imagine that this is going to shine in that darkness like this blinding beacon of hope for them? That every day as they face arrest, as they face the possibility of being found guilty of treason because they've determined to put their loyalty to Jesus over and above anything else and against that sort of darkness, the prospect of a day where God will wipe every tear from their eye, the prospect of a day where God will live with them, the prospect of a day where there'll be no more crying, no more death, no more cancer, no more broken relationships, the prospect of a day like that has got to shine so brightly like a beacon of hope, a beacon of hope for them, that helps them orient their life so that they're steering towards that great hope. But I don't know whether, whether for you, like many of us these days, this, this beacon of hope isn't, isn't so hopeful. It's not so obvious. It's not so alluring like it would have been for them. I mean, we do such a good job at setting up our home in the world. We minimize the conflict. We, we, we at times play down our Christian distinctiveness and we kind of feather the nest of kind of smoothing, smoothing our path so that life in Wellington in 2017 can actually be pretty cruisy for a Christian. And so the beacon of hope of the new heavens and the new earth, it struggles to penetrate your life. You're not sure that you even need it. They'll only reorientate, like orientating your life so that you, you, you end up there. You, you're not sure whether you need it. There was a famous preacher in Australia. His name was John Chapman. Uh, he summed our situation up pretty well. It went like this. We call him Chapo because we're Australian. That's what we do. Um, Chapo said this. We are well settled in this life. For many of us, we feel that if the new creation is really better than what we have, it can only be marginal, can't it? just marginally better. Maybe not even worth the sacrifice it will take to get there. If you don't long for this, if you feel that this new creation is only marginally better than life in this world, then you have no idea either how life, how bad this life is or how it could be or how great life with God will be. You have no idea how good and great and awesome this, this, this new creation, this new heavens and earth that God has prepared for his bride. C.S. Lewis, the, the famous author, put it like this in his book, The Weight of Glory. I'm sure you've heard this before. He sums us up like this. We are half-hearted creatures. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I remember we, um, we pulled a trick on our kids a couple of years ago. We, we had friends from Australia staying with us and we took them as, as is our tradition, when we drop people off at the airport, we go and stop at the Chocolate Fish Cafe and we get a fluffy and a coffee and enjoy the sun um, if it's out that day. Uh, and, and, and the trick was that we were taking them to the Chocolate Fish Cafe um, and we were dropping our friends at the airport, but we were actually getting on the plane with them to go have a holiday in Australia. In Australia. But our kids didn't know that. And when we told them, there was this this, this wave of 
kind of anger that washed over Isaac's face. That he wasn't going to spend the afternoon at the Chocolate Fish Cafe. That we were actually going to take him away from his fluffy and, and put him on a plane to take him on holidays at the beach in Australia. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too short-sighted. The new creation, life with God, I can guarantee that when it arrives, it will be even better than what we could ever hope or imagine. Don't be too settled in this life. Sure, we've found ways to round off the rough edges and to smooth out the kinks and we've, we've kind of, we, we make our plans so that we can wring the most out of the 70 or 80 years we have. But reality will always break in. Even here in Wellington, we try to ignore, we try to pretend that it's never going to happen, but we still live in a world that is racked with the consequences of sin and its brokenness. We're surrounded by pain. Even here in this room, even people who aren't here today are waiting anxiously on phone calls from doctors as to what the outcome might be. And sure, we can build bigger fences and we can buy better locks and maybe we can take out some insurance or we can stash something away for a rainy day, but we can't shut the pain out forever. The pain from ageing and illness, from the inevitable separation that death will bring. We can just, sometimes we just pretend we don't want to talk about it. We got our wake-up call last year with Isaac. Life is so fragile. It is so short. It can be full of so much pain and suffering that it even hurts to think about. But when John looks forward, he looks forward and he shows us a time where things will be different. A new heaven. A new earth. All things new. No more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. Because God will be there with his people firsthand. And sin and death and evil will be done with forever. Never again will we have to experience the brokenness of life in this world. And the question is, are you, are you going to be part of that? Is that your future hope? Is, is, is that your beacon of hope? The thing setting the course for your life. You see, John, he closes with these words of warning and encouragement. Warning and encouragement. He says, if you want the righteousness, if you want the life, it's free. Revelation 21 verse 6. To those who are thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. If you want righteousness, if you want life, if you want relationship with God, if you want eternal life, if you want freedom from sickness and death and pain, it's all free, no charge. Jesus has paid already. Chapter, two, chapter 22, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, Come. That the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes come. 
Take the free gift of the water of life. You see, Jesus, he's bought the drinks. He's purchased our tickets. He's secured our inheritance. And he's done it by paying the price of our sin with his blood. It's his death on the cross that guarantees us that future hope. But if you refuse his offer, if you cling to the old stuff, if you try and bring that with you into the city, well, it's just not going to be welcome. Because in the new creation, there's no room for evil. But that, that's what's going to make it great, right? There's no room for it. And so John warns us in, chapters 21, in chapter 21, verse 8, John warns us, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And again, in 22.15, outside of the dogs, those who practice magical arts, magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. In the new creation, there's no room for that stuff. That's why it's going to be so good. So cling to Jesus not to the things of this world. I don't know how good you think the new creation is. I've tried, I would say pathetically this morning, to paint a picture of how great it is. Because anything that I can say and any image that we can get from, from the Scripture, it's, it, it's going to pale into its insignificance on that day. I reckon when we get there, we'll, we'll go, oh, I see what John was trying to say, but Wow! It is going to be so much better. I mean, so often we get too distracted, we don't think about it. So often our expectations are so low, but we have no idea. Just think with me for a moment. Think about the stuff in your life. Think about the stuff in your life that is giving you grief. The stuff that you you walked through those doors this morning and you're carrying this stuff that's weighing on your mind. Decisions that are getting you down the things that are making your life hard, the things that you're being tempted with, the physical sickness that you struggle with, the loss or the pain or the anxiety or the confusion or the the misunderstandings and the worries, all those things that you carry around. These pictures tell us there will be a day when they will be gone, a day when we will finally be able to go home and be with our God where infinite joy with Him awaits us. Uh, In June, we were so stoked to come home, to leave the hospital, to leave the cancer, to leave the sickness and the tears and the struggle behind. It was so good to be home. But we were deeply aware that we are not home yet. Home is where all of these things will be no more. No more looking over your shoulder, no more dreading the phone call, no more struggling and strife. Home is a place where he will wipe every tear from our eye, where there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Home, finally at last. I want to finish with the words at the end of chapter 22. Because the whole thing is bound up with this promise from the Lord Jesus himself. Chapter 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things, says, yes, I am coming soon. Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon. 
And we join with John and say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen.